0: By verse, chapter by chapter, through the Old Testament, we find ourselves this evening in chapter 18, one of the most famous and well-loved incidents in the entire Bible. So look forward to diving in and getting started. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we just open our hearts and we pray, God, that by your spirit, you would soften us and, and give us ears that can truly hear and eyes that can see and a heart that can understand so that we could put these wonderful heart setting truths into practice and be blessed in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we've been talking lately about the different kinds of ways that God can use to get our attention. He has a variety of tricks up his sleeve, doesn't he? And uh, in this case, here in First Kings chapter 18, the Lord has been using a terrible three and a half year long drought. Now I have a picture of what that kind of looks like after three and a half years with no rain. And so, um, now you never really realize how important water and water supply is until you don't have it. So the Lord has been drying up the resources, uh, quite literally in this case, uh, the natural resources like rain. Now, he who bestows rain on the earth, he sends water upon the countryside, as Job 5 and verse 10 says, but he decided not to for three and a half years to get people looking up to get them looking past the cloudless skies and to the Lord who could fix the problem of feeling uh, the pinch of having no water. And so uh, this incident was very important. Uh, Both Jesus and James, his half-brother in the flesh, uh, speak of the event as we saw last week. And so here's the context if you're just joining us. A terrible, wicked king, perhaps one of the worst of Israel's entire history, uh, King Ahab has ascended uh, the throne there in the northern kingdom, uh, which retained the name Israel. And he has compounded his wickedness by marrying that infamously wicked, famous uh, princess named Jezebel. And she is the daughter of the king of Sidon, which is modern day Lebanon. She is a Phoenician princess of the most evil kind. And uh, together, uh, the Mr. and Mrs. Darth Vader are, <laughs> are plunging the nation of Israel into new depths. Now enter the prophet Elijah. As of last week, we saw in chapter 17, uh, he is the one who has announced this drought directly to the face of this nasty king as a direct judgment of God uh, pitting really himself, Yahweh, against the god of Baal, or Baal, because Baal is a fertility god, it, it, the Israelites are praying to Baal for their rain, and so uh, God appoints the prophet Elijah to go and say, "Since you are talking to Baal about the rain, let me just show you what's going to happen." And so the Lord takes action. Now, what we've seen and learned of Elijah so far is really, in my estimation, preparing Elijah for this chapter that's coming. This tremendous, dramatic, powerful showdown between him and 450 demon-filled false prophets of Baal. And so uh, what we've seen so far is just uh, the Lord preparing this man of God in in sort of the wilderness here. um, uh, Three years hidden away with God uh, in solitude, getting to know the Lord. Uh, He's learning to depend on God alone. And here's the lesson that we saw last week. Elijah is nothing and God is everything. That is what he's teaching. Uh, Elijah before he has to face this king again and these 450 um, demonic uh, powers. And so uh, Elijah has seen the miraculous power of God uh, through this endless supply of of God's miracle provision through this widow's flask of oil and her uh, jar of flour and uh, by raising the widow's boy from the dead, the Lord has shown him. Look, I, Elijah, in these three and a half years before you go into battle, I'm the giver and sustainer of life and nothing is too hard for me. And so in this three and a half years, the prophet has learned to hear God's voice, to be confident in him, uh, to depend on him, and to, to know that God can do the impossible. Now he's ready for chapter 18. Now, verse one. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Now, the parenthetical information, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a 100 prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land, to all the springs and valleys, Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of the animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in the other. All right, so if you're taking notes, number one, the divine command. The divine command. It's time for confrontation. Uh, The drought has served the Lord's purposes. Three and a half years have passed. It's time to send the rains, but he's not going to do so without teaching Israel a grand lesson and trying to draw their hearts back to him. So uh, time to confront this mad dog king and his vicious wife. Uh, Elijah's now prepared to do so. Now, can you imagine? He's asking Elijah to go unarmed to this king who's demonized, the wife is even worse than the husband, uh, they have an army, he's asking this prophet with no weapons, no protection, just go and present yourself to him. And, and you read right there, uh, so Elijah went to present himself to the king. Why, why can he do that? Because God has prepared him. That's what God is always doing. And we don't understand what's going on with the droughts that we uh, encounter or the hard times that God puts us through or the lean times. He's just come out of three and a half years of very lean, tough times. But God was there showing himself in real ways, providing for him in miraculous ways. This guy is able now to hear, go and present yourself to this king who wants to kill you. And So he says, okay, he's not afraid, he's not intimidated because God has prepared him, but he's cooperated in the three and a half years with God's plan to to, uh, prepare his soul uh, for this task. Now, uh, recently, you know, uh, I've recommended a few devotionals that I like. One of my favorites is called Streams in the Desert. We have it uh, on sale here in the lobby. You can find it, but here's a reading from March 4th. Talking about how God prepares us for situations. There is only one thing, said a village blacksmith, that I fear, and that is to be thrown on the scrap heap. When I am tempering a piece of steel, I first beat it, hammer it, and then suddenly plunge it into a bucket of cold water. I very soon find whether it will take temper or go to pieces in the process. When I discover after one or two tests that it's not going to allow itself to be tempered, I throw it on the scrap heap and sell it for a cent a pound when the junk man comes around. So I I find the Lord tests me too by fire and water and heavy blows of his heavy hammer. And if I'm not willing to stand the test, or I am not going to prove a fit subject for his tempering process, I'm afraid that he may toss me aside and I may miss the beautiful experience of being molded by the master's hands. And so I just love that. Elijah held still. He didn't go off somewhere and say, you know, I've got questions about this. Where's Jehovah Jireh, my provider, you know? He didn't cop an attitude during all that struggle. He didn't start, start having his doubts and uh, get resentful and all of that. Or decide, you know what, I just need a break. I leave, uh, I love this one. I need a little me time. <laughs> don't ever say that. You don't need a little me time so much. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody needs a little break and a rest. But we get into a lot of trouble when we start to have a little me time and so, uh, uh, Elijah's mettle has been tested. He emerged solid and bold and obedient. He's unafraid. He's, as 2 Timothy chapter 2 puts it, uh, he's useful now to the master and prepared to do any good work. And what a good work he's about to do. And I personally believe that had he not cooperated with God during the first three and a half years in obscurity, just in some little corner of the world, being uh, obedient to God, then we would not have this chapter with all its glory. And so uh, 450, as I said, I call them demonized false prophets against one man of God. In verse five, uh, we see that the severe effects of the drought have have kind of ferreted out King Ahab from his palace to search uh, for any remaining stubble around to find uh, for his horses and mules. Now, Notice, he won't ask God, and he won't humble himself. He knows it's all about Elijah's prayers. He could send for Elijah to fix it and find a lot of green grass because God would end the drought. But no, he's going to, like most unrepentant sinners, he's going to go find a way around this problem. I'm going to go find looking for grass somewhere. There's got to be grass. So he's seeking grass instead of seeking God. And that's how they are. And, and notice this. Notice this. He doesn't care to alleviate the suffering of of the people of Israel. He wants the grass for horses and mules. Horses and mules are for his army. So he wants to maintain uh, a strong army so he can oppress people. So he's more concerned about losing uh, the military vehicles and muscle power than he is uh, repenting finding God himself and then alleviating the problems there for suffering people that he's supposed to be king over uh, to help and to care about. So now introducing the palace administrator Obadiah and you're asking in your minds is this the Obadiah of the Minor Prophets? Nobody really knows. You know why? Because there's 13 Obadiah, Obi-Wan Kenobis. (laughs) There are 13 obadiahs uh, around this area in scripture. So uh, some say yes, some say no, but you know what? I think yes, because I just like to tie things together like that, I think it's nice. Now, here's a, a guy who works for the wicked king who's a devout believer. He's, a, he's Judas in reverse. You get it? See, he's King Ahab, and, and everybody's a bad apple, Right? And there's one good apple. He's under cover for the Lord. He's a devout believer. So, so the Lord has this guy in the palace with Jezebel and Ahab. He's, he's number two guy. He's managing the affairs of the palace and the right hand and admin guy for King Ahab who's called a devout believer. Uh, one writer put it this way. Many employers have unknowingly unknowingly employed Christians uh, in influential positions who clandestinely are working not so much for their unbelieving bosses but serving God and making a difference for him and his kingdom. Yes, we look to our bosses' interests and do a good job. Uh, We're getting paid to, to accomplish a task and we accomplish that task. But you know what? Look to your boss's interests without forgetting your Lord's interests as well. Amen? Amen? Now, verses three and four. Uh, I love this. It says he's a devout believer, but we didn't really need that commentary, did we? Because we can see from his actions that he's a devout believer. Uh, now, while Jezebel's killing off the uh, prophets are like pastors, Think of them, we always think of them as everything that comes out of their mouth is predictive, foretelling the future, but it's actually forthtelling. So it's guys who would minister and take care of people and preach the word of God and teach the word of God and lead in prayer. And these kinds of things. And so uh, Jezebel's killing off the pastors in the nation. Uh, at, and so him, at significant risk, manages to save a 100 of them, hides them in a couple caves, supplies them with water and food. Now, listen, do we need to know? He's a devout believer. Did he need to tell anybody, hey, I'm a believer in the Lord. Check out my bumper sticker on my chariot. There's a fish. <laughs> All right, we don't need to see the fish. We don't need anything on the T-shirt. We don't need to see him raising his hands in church. We don't need to hear him talking extra loud so people know that he's a believer. You know what? We look at his life, and he was a courageous person who said, you know what, evil is all around me. I'm going to do my best. Even though it's at some cost to me, I'm going to hide a hundred of God's people and I'm going to supply food and water. And so we just know right away that he is a believer. Uh, James chapter 2 and verse 18 says, show me, don't tell me. Show me. He's a devout believer. Anybody who saw how Obadiah lived knew he was a devout believer. So moving on. So these two guys are out uh, foraging through the Israeli countryside, uh, the wicked king and his devout admin guy searching for patches of vegetation. And uh, the king says, you go right, I'll go left. And off they went, verses 7 through 15. Now, as Obadiah was walking along, looking for the foliage, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied, go tell your master Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go until Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshiped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 15 each and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. He's going to kill me. (laughs) Elijah said, chill out, man. As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. All right, let's pause there. So we've seen the divine command and now the divine appointment. How does God do things like this? You know, He just sets us up, what, Sunday morning? Last Sunday morning we talked about, what are the odds that Paul, the apostle's nephew, just happens to be cutting through town somewhere in Jerusalem where he comes upon 40 thugs who are planning to kill his uncle. And he's able to sit there long enough to hear all the details and then carry it off and save the day. And so just the providence of God right away. You know, Ahab sends him. I love this. Ahab sends him that way, and then God says, "Thank you very much," because Elijah's coming uh, to run straight into him. I love Psalm 37:23 says, "The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord." So as Obadiah, who's a good man, is walking along looking for pasture, he finds a pastor instead. Uh, unexpectedly runs into the guy head on and kind of blows Obadiah away. He, Obadiah just has a little bit of a meltdown here. Now, I call him Obi-Wan Kenobi, but uh, listen, Obi, as we do, we call each other that, I guess, when we're (laughs) friends with them, Obadiah, okay, fine, I'll call him Obadiah, blown away by this chance encounter, why? First of all, Elijah's pretty famous. Second of all, he holds the key to the drought. Everybody's dying. And everybody knows Elijah could pray and fix all of this. And he's a man of God, right? And so he's kind of like, kind of blown away, like I said. Is it really you? And he says, yep, it's me. Go tell the king Elijah's here. So Obadiah is a good man, but he could use a little bit more faith, I think. Uh, here's a paraphrase of the conversation. What have I done to you that makes you want to kill me and get me (laughs) killed, all right? The king has searched three years, high and low, for you. He's had men men hunting you down in caves, valleys, mountains, forests, and even to other nations. I mean, he searched for you over the river and through the woods. (laughs) Now, if he he just would have gotten to grandma's house, they would have found him. Okay, never mind. Uh, He gets very, very angry when he hunts down a false lead and you slip through his fingers. Now he says, I can just picture it, okay? I tell the king, Elijah's here, like all the other times he's heard that, right? We come back. And then God has whisked you away on some sort of divine mission. And who am I, going to argue with God that he needed you? you know. And then I'm going to be standing there, and there's going to be a well, and me, and a mad dog king. And me going, are you just here? Let's look over here and see. You know what? Uh, I don't appreciate that. You know. Guess what happens next in the story? Me dead, all right? So he says, by the way, I love this part. It's so Jewish. I hear a lot of my family and me in this. So he gets down here and he goes, by the way, I don't deserve this either. Did you happen to know what a good person I am? All right. I I mean, let me tell you, okay? I took a 100 of the prophets and I hid them in two caves. I've been supplying them with water and with food. and, And now you want to do this to a guy like me? That's what he's saying. Yeah, and Allah just like, Oy vey, brother. (laughs) Get a grip, man. So he has to just kind of, he he kind of swears, he takes an oath. He says, listen, as surely as the Lord lives, man, I'm going to be here when you guys come back. And I guess that's it. I have written down here for me, what caused Obadiah's meltdown? Number one, his eyes were on the wrong king. It's all about Ahab. How about Yahweh? Yahweh's kept you safe pretty good so far sir, with the 50 here and the 50 there, right? Number two, he's thinking what if instead of since God. Remember, I'm always talking about this. Forget the what ifs. When you're doing the what if thing, just start to replace that with since God. So instead of saying, uh, what if you're not here when we get back? you could be saying, since God has brought me safe thus far and since God has allowed this chance meeting and since God has allowed Elijah, who's asking for the meeting, then I'll be able to go with confidence to Ahab. One writer said this, momentary lapses in spiritual perspective causes unnecessary moments of anxiety and unrest. You didn't have to have that meltdown, ma'am, sir, and Obadiah. Oive, all of these meltdowns that we have are just needless. All the what if? What if this and what if that? And you've lost so much sleep over stuff like this. Have no anxiety about anything. You know, that covers a lot of stuff. That anything word? It really does have no anxiety about anything. Philippians chapter four. 4, verse 6. Very good. Very good. And verse 7. Thank you. Who wants to quote it? Go for it, Grant. All right, (laughs) that was awesome, that was awesome. Peter, in the embrace of the Lord with his eyes, the second he takes his eyes off the Lord, boom, he starts to sink, and that's too bad. You don't need to sink, you really don't. Elijah's promise seems to assure him, let's move on, Uh, 16 through 20, So Obadiah went to go get Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel, you troublemaker, is that you? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. All right, so number three, divine challenge, divine challenge. So uh, Obadiah mans up love it, and he goes to find his evil-hearted boss and says, Elijah's here and wants to have a little talk with you, boss, and uh, uh, sure enough, Elijah was waiting right where he said he would be. Now, notice Ahab's twisted theology right away. I love noticing stuff like this. Uh, Unrepented sinners constantly uh, have upside-down thinking, and to some degree, Anybody who 's apart from the Lord is kind of like this elijah you 're the problem here you 're the problem for the for the pain and the suffering of the drought you're the problem with division. you are the problem and so we hear that cry today. The Bible is the origin of all our societal ills. the believers are the problems and so like the bumper sticker says, man, can't we all coexist? What a world it could be if, if there was just one people and one planet, please. You know, the little earth and, and everybody united in love. There could be peace if it weren't for you Christians. Always judging and the threat of hell and all the right and the wrong and the absolute truths. You're the troublemakers. Is that you, O oh, troubler of the world, O oh, Christian? You know, the intolerance of sinful lifestyles, uh, the, um, the turning away of other paths and gods, the division you cause with the gospel in society and families. We could be in paradise around, if you are little holy conscience was gone, if we didn't always have you speaking up all the time, uh, gay marriages could go on to live happily ever after without you squawking away and trying to cause uh, all kinds of problems. Everybody could be getting high legally. Christians have to say, oh, I don't think it's right to get high. (laughs) What's wrong with you guys? I'm not mad at you you're looking at me like uh, hey I'm, I'm with you I'm on this side but I'm just playing them right now you know we could kill all the unborn children who get in our way of our sexual freedoms but no we gotta have you with your signs and your prayers and your meetings and your legislation we could just kill them I mean we want to have sex, okay? And sometimes somebody gets pregnant. Get rid of it, man. You Christians trouble all of you. <coughs> Am I convincing you yet? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus was called a troublemaker. Paul was called a troublemaker. Elijah's called a troublemaker. Have you been called a troublemaker? Well, oh, you're in good company. Congratulations. I love Elijah in verse 18. He's on phase, man. King Ahab says, is that you, troublemaker? He goes, hey, I'm not the troublemaker. You're the problem. You and your family. You know why? Because you walked away from God. Uh, You know, is there any way to misunderstand that message? You know, he's not like today's Christians and preachers who talk two ways out of their mouths. You know, uh, so they don't want to offend anybody. But once in a while, you have to look at somebody and say, you know what, that's wrong, you're the problem, and here's what you're doing. You're doing this, or you're doing that. And the Lord promises that that kind of behavior is not going to be blessed. And sometimes you just gotta set people straight. Now, if you're somebody who really likes to do that, then stop doing it, all right? (laughs) Because uh, (laughs) you shouldn't enjoy it. But (laughs) sometimes you have to do it. But uh, uh, I'm not not giving the person who does it in the wrong way license to continue to be that way. Did you hear me on that? Amen? All right. Thank you. Now, uh, Elijah sets them straight, and then they fix a date. All right? So here's why he's going to say, let's have a little um, showdown. And here's why he's saying it. He's saying, now, it, it, is it Baal withholding the reins or Yahweh? So let's go ahead and see if it's me who's the troublemaker or you. And that's why he says, right from that statement, you're the troublemaker. He says, okay, then let's find out who the true troublemaker is. And, and he proposes this beautiful plan. Now, the rains are coming, so it's pretty important to Israel that Israel knows that, uh, which God is now going to be sending that reign. So in verse 19, Elijah challenges uh, 450 prophets of Baal, along with 400 prophets uh, who represent Baal's consort or wife, Asherah. Now, they don't show up. We don't see them in the text. So uh, commentators say they chicken out. And hats off to them. Because they heard, hey, Elijah wants a showdown. They're like, okay, you guys go. (laughs) And so 450 of the prophets do. Oh, there's a comment in there, the 450 prophets who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel's the real problem here. Ahab's not as bad as his wife. His wife came down from Sidon uh, with this love for Baal, and she is state sponsoring uh, Baal worship. She's, She's the money behind it. She, she's killing the true prophets, and she's uh, feeding and housing and clothing these false prophets. So they eat at her table, the queen mother's table. And so Ahab's so far gone, he goes along with the plan. Oh, sounds good. He thinks he's got a chance. Yeah, hey, let's do it. Mount Carmel? Oh, it's right. It, it's, it's the Baal's um, stronghold. It's where they did their thing to Baal. So uh, he picks a place that they would be more inclined to say yes. All right. So all Israel's gathered. The 450 prophets are there now with their devilish devices. And it's time to get started. And all of Israel's there too. So uh, just wonderful. Verses 21 to 29. So Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions, people? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Go ahead and get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, He is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. <laughs> Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, you guys go first. Call on the name of your God but don't light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Uh, perhaps he's in deep thought or, or perhaps busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and <laughs> must be awakened. Now, you know Elijah's my kind of guy, right there. <laughs> Love him. Verse 28. So they shouted louder <laughs> and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, 3 p.m. But there was no response, no one answered, and no one paid attention. All right, let's pause there. Divine command was one, divine challenge was two, divine showdown, uh, number three. Now, we have actually have a slide of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And I would like you to take a look at it. <laughs> that is the valley of Megiddo behind uh, Mount Carmel where Armageddon shall take place. We are on the top of Mount Carmel where that incident happened. Where Pastor Jim last May, Pastor Jim's assignment, we all got assignments there. Pastor Jim was assigned the, the uh, chapter 18 of 1 Kings, and he did a, a really wonderful job, I must say. He kind of looks the part, amen? <laughs> he's probably a little bit more handsome than Elijah and more clean shaven. <laughs> All right, thank you for the picture. I don't want to distract you. So, um, God always demands we choose, right? So, He's going to make a choice. That's what from the beginning. How did this all happen? Well, we had a choice, right? And why did he give us a choice? Don't you hear that from non-Christians? I was gonna call them un-Christians. Don't you hear that a lot? Why why did he give us a choice if he knew what was gonna happen? Because love demands free will. You can't have a bunch of robots like I love you, Lord, in a Siri voice, you know? It doesn't work. He wanted choice, so, so he says, listen, all the trees are yours. You own the place, man. Eat till your heart's content, to your heart's content. But there is one tree, just one. It's right in the middle. Just avoid that. Don't go near it. Don't eat from it, because the day you do, you're going to die. Choice. They exercise their Choice. And there were consequences to that choice. And I'm just going to tell you this. You choose every day. You choose uh, Ahab or Elijah. You choose Yahweh or Baal. You choose me or God. You choose moment by moment. Every day something happens that demands you to go left or right. Bible or self, God or human logic. So just because you've chosen to be a Christian, and I'm happy you have, it doesn't mean you have stopped deciding moment by moment who to follow and and whose way to do what's facing you. And so here you have it again. I mean, even Joshua says, uh, but if serving the Lord, seems I have this on a slide, if serving the Lord, Joshua tells the people following him, in the wilderness there. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's audience chanted back, we will serve the Lord. This audience, a little more hesitant, nothing, just nothing. When he says, hey, if, if God is the Lord, if, uh, if Baal, but they get nothing. Jesus just told us, listen, everybody's got a choice. You can't get away from that. Here it, here it is in Matthew No one can serve two masters. he will either hate one, love the other. he will either be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't love God and money. So the God that Jesus was talking about in context there was the God of, of money. And so you're making choices. They had to make a choice. So Elijah, thank you for the slide. Elijah gives instructions now before these hesitant uh, Jews. So he says, number one, get to built. Uh, Bowls, one for you, guys, the 458 view, and one for me. All right, and then you know Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s, he said, uh, "One with God is a majority. One with God is a majority." Number two, he said, "Each of you set uh, set up your own altar. You guys set up your altar. Uh, get it all set up, but no fire." And then you can call on your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and whoever shows up by fire, uh, he's God. And the false prophets say, agreed. All right, they're, they're excited. That's crazy. That's how much they believed it. Who are the false prophets of Baal? They're Jews. They used to be God-loving Israelites. I, I always picture pagans are doing this part. These guys are, are true blue Jews, but not really. It's very sad. So Elijah says, you guys go first, because that's the way it's really got to work, right? They got to go first, because you know it'd be over in one minute <laughs> if, if Elijah went. So we got to humiliate you and your gods, so you guys go first. But I love what Elijah says, because there's so many of you. <laughs> you know, He knows they need to go first. He knows. And so uh, they call from morning to noon, and there's a lot of peep or sound, and then they start dirty dancing, you know. Oh, oh, Baal, answer us. And uh, it's quite a show, you know. So at noon is when we pick up with uh, the holy sarcasm. I guess Elijah is a little hungry. He's feeling a little irritable right? It's noontime, he sees the stakes on the altar, right? He's a little irritable, and so he's like, how long do I have to put up with this? And so he's just thinking, oh, oh, you guys, you don't get it. So he says, hey, shout louder. (laughs) I mean, after all, he, he is a god, and I guess it's a long way to get to heaven, so you better just turn up the volume, which they do, which is surprising. And then And then he says, uh, listen, the way I see it, you have four options, guys. Number one, he's deep in thought. He's preoccupied. You know how gods are. You know, he's running the world. He just, he's overloaded right now, okay? Number two, uh, maybe he's busy with other stuff. You know, he's got, he's in China. You know, I don't know he's working on this. Well, he's out of town, number three. Gods have a demanding schedule. All right. I mean, you guys know. Don't worry, he'll come back. Number four, maybe he's just taking a nap. Okay. Now, as most Oriental deities do to this day, living in Japan, four years, we had a shrine right by our house. They come in, they toss a coin, they write down a prayer. I asked my Japanese friend, why do, "Why do they clap to wake them up, to wake the deities up?" And I said, "You know it just does it seem logical to me that I'd be praying to a God who falls asleep sometimes?" you know?" And he said, "You know, I don't think they really believe it, but that's what we do. We clap to wake them up. Now) um, yeah, so he has a lot of fun. Now, I, I will tell you, I will tell you, and I, I don't want to be rude about it, but there is a Hebrew rendering of one of the phrases, which kind of implies perhaps he's busy uh, doing something. Perhaps he's, yeah, yes, relieving himself. All right, Uh, he's occupied. That is what the Hebrew implies, but most English uh, translations want to spare you what I just put you through. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. Uh. So the teasing makes them more frantic. It raises to a feverish pitch. Uh, They start to cut themselves, which is very demonic. Uh, which is still in vogue today. Unfortunately, people cut themselves, and you know who's behind that, right? The same one who was behind this. And uh, chanting, dancing, cutting, bloody, sweaty, mess. 3 p.m., you know, the thing about some people say, hey, as long as you're sincere, what's more sincere than dancing around this altar for hours and hours and hours and then cutting yourself and letting blood flow. So, so what is more sincere than that? So please know this. Sincerity means nothing. It means nothing if it's not in accordance to knowledge. Zeal for God, as, as Romans chapter 10, verse 2 says, I bear them record, Paul speaking about the Jews, they have a zeal and excitement for God. So do the Muslims. But it's not in accordance to knowledge. and if it's not in accordance to knowledge or zeal, it's just destructive. It's destructive. And so notice the Holy Spirit in verse 29, really emphasizing no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. For me, so sad. And here's what it's saying: When you're unrepented sinner who's trusting in other gods in your time of need when you're crying out there's nothing there's going to be nobody there there's going to be a deafening silence Uh, I have Proverbs chapter 1 here on the screen for you I'll read wisdom is now speaking and wisdom has a voice and wisdom is saying if you had responded to my rebuke I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand for three and a half years, right, drought, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock like Elijah when calamity overtakes you when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but they will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their own schemes. Now, That's a good way to describe what's happening there. God has been more than gracious. Three and a half years to try to deal with these people. And still they don't turn. Now, happily, with repentance and trust in Jesus, when we call out, no matter how foolish we've been, he answers. That is talking about in Proverbs when you continue in that way without a true repentance when you're just calling out you know even in an uh, with an unrepented heart just because you want to avoid the painful consequences of the action you're not interested in in turning your heart or reconciling with God that's the kind of response that people like that get so At 3 p.m., the show's over. That's the time of the evening sacrifice for Jews. And Elijah steps up and takes control. Let's finish up. Then Elijah said to all the people, okay, come close. (laughs) Come close. They they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. You know why? Because it hadn't been used for years. There was an altar up there back in the day. So he has to fix it up a little bit because... Nobody's used it, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. That's important, we'll talk about it. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold three gallons, I I did that for free, all right, for you, three gallons of seed, He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering, gasps, (laughs) and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time. Why not? He ordered. And they did it a third time. So now they've soaked the whole place with water. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob's name is also Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Finally, verse 40, Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there's the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and a heavy rain came on and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So finally, we have two in here. Uh, number four would be divine answers, 30 to 38, and divine judgment, 38 to the end of the chapter. Okay, just a couple of remarks here. The divine answer, is there anything more fun, exciting, or faith-building than an answer to prayer, especially when it's totally 100% uh, impossible? It looks totally like it could never happen, and God does a wonderful thing. There's, there's, some, there's nothing like that, and so, uh, he sets the stage here. Elijah repairs the altar. He gathers the people tighter, says, hey, okay, come on. These, the, I'm sorry, these foolish people are done. Come on in. I want you to see something. I don't want you to miss it. Verse 31, he incorporates 12 stones. This is a shout out, slam to Israel. He says, you were named Israel. Give me 12 stones. Ah, we're a divided kingdom. We've, we've taken two of them away. But see, there's a rebuke to Israel there. I named you Israel, and I called you to be 12 tribes. Get 12 stones and put them up there. So that's kind of interesting there. He, and then verse 33, arrange it all. The wood and the butchered sacrifice goes down there. And then he does something amazing, which speaks to our hearts in beautiful ways. Uh, he says, soak the whole thing with water. So they do it. And can you imagine the people's faces? See, he's pouring water on top of of the sacrifice to make it harder. It would be hard enough to light up something with no help from man to just have it burst into flames, but then to say, okay, you know, pour it on again. Oh, one more time. Can't hurt, right? So the water has now filled the trench around there, and it's just soaking wet. Now, the spiritual application for this is the more impossible the situation, the more glory God receives when he does it. And for me, all of us, we all have sacrifices, we all have an offering, we all have something we're praying about that we've laid it out there, we need to see God answer that thing that's so dear to us. And, and, and little by little, the water comes. And, and instead of becoming excited and hopeful like we should, we become discouraged. Now, I personally have something that's out there, that's been out there for several years. And I see every day more and more water put onto it. This thing every time the water comes on, you're saying, well, it'll take a miracle now. And then I hear myself saying that and I get excited because I know God delights in doing things that give Jesus and his kingdom glory. And so uh, I personally, I kind of get excited now when the water comes. In fact, you know, I kind of go along with it like, hey, put on some more water. Let me, let me help because I'm going to see God do this wonderful thing. So, you know, if water's pouring down on your, your sacrifice and you're like, this is impossible, you know what? Take heart. I think it's a sign that God is going to do something fantastic with that thing. Amen? Amen. The prayer's pretty cool. The prayer is just straight up, just clears things up. One, answer and show who's boss. (laughs) Is it you, the God of the Bible? Number two, answer and show that I'm your servant. Validate me in all of this too. Number three, answer and show that you haven't given up on them and that you're drawing their hearts back. So it's not, you know, when they see the fire, let them realize that it's not because you're going to kill them all. It's because you want, you love them all and you want them to come back to you. So 6 hours or 8 hours of pleading by pagans versus 1 minute a prayer from Elijah that says oh lord and bam lightning strikes and fire falls. The offering disintegrates flash in a flash. Not just the wood and the meat, but the stones? <laughs> how do you how, how do you make fire hot enough to make the stones go away? How about the soil and the water? You know what God was saying? This isn't an accident. Nobody's going to be able to walk away and go, well, you know, it was pretty hot. <laughs> you know, and it's pretty dry. You know how dry it's been. And, you know, it's a fire hazard to have a drought for three years. So, he's, so, so the next guy will say, hey, listen, the rocks, <laughs> the rocks burned up. The water, you saw the water on there. You know, um, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. And God's not afraid to do that. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. Come on, listen. God can do, uh, Ephesians 3.20 says, go ahead and think this about God. He can do immeasurably more than that. So go ahead and think your highest thought. He could do a 100 times more more than that and I think that's what he's doing he's pulling in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 here so a lot of the Israelites of this period kind of remind me of the parable Jesus taught about the seed going to the heart and the gospel goes into the heart but there's no uh, there's no depth so these guys repent oh the Lord he is God the Lord he is God and guess what a couple more chapters the Lord isn't God anymore right Why? Because there's no depth of soil. So they spring up right there. The flowers in bloom, but there's no root. And so when trouble comes, they fall away. So we close out with the divine judgment. Uh, The false prophets have to uh, not only be humiliated, but they have to be punished, and judgment is coming. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 18, says false prophets who commit such crimes against man and God must be put to death. And so they are ordered to be put to death. They go down the hill and uh, they, are, uh, they, res- they receive their just rewards. Now, uh, what I like about that is, is that there's time to repent all the way down the hill. I mean, they've seen a lot. Any one of them in their right mind could just cry out, Yahweh, Yahweh, what have we been doing? You are, oh, wow, I just saw that. I repent, I repent. They know they're going to be killed at the bottom of the hill. I bet we're going to meet a lot of them. I really 400 out of 400, how many had the common sense to say, you know what, I better get right with God. I got about three minutes. <laughs> you know? I, I, I'd like to meet them. I think we're going to. So here comes the long-awaited rain, and it looks like God is trying to get to uh, Ahab to repent in verse 41. The contest is over. So, what does Elijah say? He says, Hey, man, it's overdone. You must be hungry. Go get some food. It's funny. I, I mean, he just goes to the rest stop down a little ways. He's got some attendance and, he's, and he does. He goes to, to refresh himself with some food while Elijah goes higher on the hill for a better vantage point to pray. So one guy goes to eat and one guy goes to pray. So what's Elijah thinking? Well, where's the rain? He's just told Ahab, hey, you better get going. I hear rain, right? There's not a cloud in the sky yet. But he knows, hey, we're done here. The rain's got to come. But he knows he's got to pray. That's the deal. So he goes up and he gets kind of in the fetal position. He gets in a very humbling position. And he just cries out to God, very interesting here. So he prays the first time and he sends his associate out uh, to, to get a good view of the horizon and he comes back and says, uh, boss, blue skies. He says, okay, let me pray some more and go out and check it out and he comes back, he goes, sunny and mild. Third time, go out and check, man, go out and check. He goes back, nothing, nothing. Number four, continues to intercede and then he says, go, go check, go check and he comes back and now he's just like, nothing he doesn't even have to say anything the fifth time what a pain no rain the sixth time he just doesn't say anything he just looks at the ground he goes back to praying and watching and uh elijah looks up and the servant just gives him two thumbs up and starts singing a song i don't know if you've heard it it's in hebrew I'm singing in the rain. I'm singing in the rain. What a (laughs) glorious feeling. I'm happy again. All right. Now, now listen. Two lessons here. No, just I'm wrapping it up. I'm wrapping it up. Two lessons here. The little sign with the little faith means that big things are coming. He just sees a little puff. And Elijah's like, done. Here it comes. Oh, but how about you? When you see the little, just nothing, you just see like, oh man, that could be. Is that enough for you? Oh, it's enough for me. When we started this church with n- nobody, nothing, just a thought in my head, just a thought in my head. And a lady said, I was looking for a place to find our first meeting hall. And and I, I read some some piece of paper somewhere that there was a hall in Sebastopol. I called the number and she said, did you see the advertisement? I said, no. I said, I just got this from the Chamber of Commerce. And she said, we're a hall. It used to be a church, but we don't use it on Sundays. We were thinking a church would love to rent from us. So I thought, maybe you saw the ad in the paper. I said, no, I didn't see the ad, but we are a church, and I'd love to rent the hall. Bingo, right? For me, that was a little cloud that said hundreds of people Twelve employees, uh, a ministry that reaches around the world. That's that for me. All I needed was to hear her say, "Did you see the ad?" And it was like, "Bingo! I'm on the right path." God, is it's just. I don't need a lot to get excited. I just see a little thing, and and it's like, God, yes, it's gonna happen. It's going. It's coming. Here it is. I'm on the right track. Let let the little fit the size of the fist little thing. Let it excite you. God, the day of, don't despise the the day of small beginnings. Is that right? Did I get it? Good, good. The second thing is is the lesson on prayer. Come on. Uh, Prayer is more, here's the lesson, real quick. Prayer is more than saying your prayers, making a list, and having God do what you asked. This is showing us that prayer is a relationship with God where you're constantly praying and constantly watching and responding about how God is is answering your prayers. Right, So it's more of showing, look, we walk with God and we pray with God and we watch with God. We don't just have our prayer time at night, boom, done. Jesus is over and then the next time I'll talk to him is in church and then boom, boom, boom and done. That's kind of what the lesson is here. Jesus said, I want to remind you to always pray and not give up, Luke chapter 18 and verse one. And so finally... He says, go tell Ahab now, now that we see the little cloud, go tell Ahab, he's chowing down at the rest stop. Go tell him, get in your chariot, here comes the rain, or you're not going to be able to cross the the little Kishon Valley there because it's going to be flooded. And so he does tell him that, and he gets in his chariot, and he has a lot to think about because the rain falls down on him, torrential rains. Ahab, please, while you're in your chariot, can you please just say, I can't believe it's pouring down rain right now from a blue sky after everything you just saw. And there will be people who perish after God has bent over backwards like that and showed them the world and just said, hey Amen, I'm here. I've got a plan. I love you. Turn to me. And so, verse 45 Ahab is soaked and he's uh, making his way to Jezreel. And last verse in your text, very interesting. Elijah tucks his cloak, his robe, into his belt so that he can run. And he runs the 14 miles to the palace so that he can deliver this whole story to Jezebel first before the husband. And he beats him. That's a miracle. All right? (laughs) Can you just imagine, uh, just like a cartoon with the legs going like this, you know? Uh, I wanna see that one. I wanna see that one on video for sure. And so, the Lord is at work in powerful ways. And what's the heart of the passage? The heart of the passage is that he has not given up on these people, and he's drawing their hearts back to him. Everything that you see in these chapters is about the love of God, reaching out to people, saying, hey, it's not over. You've made some mistakes, but I still love you. Come on back to me. Open arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these chapters that are just filled with so much uh, good truth and wisdom. And We pray that you bless bless us now as we reflect on these things and worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing psalm. Lord, we pray that you'd help uh, strengthen our faith. We thank you, God, for your great love for each person here tonight. Lord, that as we think about some of our dreams and some of our prayer requests and things we have on the altar that have water all over them, help us to change the way we think about that and get excited. Your power is made perfect through our weakness. You delight showing your miraculous strength where it doesn't seem possible. So help us to take heart, to be encouraged by what we read tonight, that you are the God who could do exceedingly above and beyond more than we could ask or think or imagine. You're a good God. You love us. We just wait on you. We pray and watch and pray and watch encourage us tonight. We pray and use us in great ways in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. There's prayer at the cross and also we'll see you Sunday morning in Acts chapter 24.